Welcome back to Rethinking Politics, episode 70. I... <laughs> Woohoo. Is that you're enthusiastic still in my head enough, at this Dan? point that I paused, knowing that something would come, and, you know, it's just, just like I could go on or we could get this out of the way. <laughs> or we could... <laughs> this started well well that that tells you how i feel because right before we started recording dan, recording dan reminded me about not putting my elbows on my desk and saying too many ums and ahs and so now i'm <laughs> self-conscious about that so i thought i'd derail your train of thought so we can both be be right One of these days i'm gonna me. need a standing mic arm so that every time i t- tap the desk it doesn't reverberate through the microphone right i uh, yeah well one day one day we can have a nice, you know, Joe Rog Joe Rogan style uh, <laughs> Joe Rog. That's I think that's now a thing. <laughs> so so we're we're about thirty seconds in and I've already decided let's just call it. No, we're good. Merry we'll Christmas. see you all we'll next peace. week. Hope you enjoy your <laughs> That's break. not true. Don't go anywhere. This is don't this go has anywhere. Been us. We spent a ridiculous amount of time in this. <laughs> <laughs> we want to talk a little bit about uh about a phenomenon that is really well manifest in the discussion between Brett Weinstein and Sam Harris. A little introduction to Brett Weinstein. Go listen to it. We've, we've talked to him about him so many times. Um, Brett and Heather, we often refer to Brett Weinstein because often he's the, he's the face of it in that when they visit with somebody else, sometimes it's just him talking to that somebody else. Almost yeah, always, almost yeah, always. when there's a guest, it's the two of them. And to be fair, his YouTube the YouTube channel is still called Brett Weinstein. It's not called the Dark Horse yeah. Podcast, which yeah, I think his so clearly yes, they're his fine in, with initially it. Initially, it was it was clearly intended to be just him. The early episodes were just him. Anyway, his wife now regularly takes part in it and is wonderful. Both of them are evolutionary biologists. Her name is Heather Haying. 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 I think, I think it sounds great. right. Um, uh, and they're they're remarkable people, uh, and they're a lot of fun to listen to. Also extremely insightful, and as we've we've noted over and over again, they're I think they're a critical voice in uh, discussing the science of COVID nineteen in the world right now. So they're gonna mm-hmm. you're gonna hear things there that you won't hear anywhere else until I guess recently Joe Rogan joined the conversation. <laughs> Joe Rogan's had a couple people here and there. Um, Joe Rogan covers virtually everything, uh, so <laughs> no surprise there. Yeah, but he's gotten a lot of flack for for covering alternative COVID treatments and the vaccine hesitant. The fact that he's even enabled that has become a very controversial issue, which is part of what we're talking about today. Yeah, so Party One, Brett Weinstein and and company, um, and Joe Rogan, and through this recent episode especially, uh, that we'll go into more detail on probably. Then on the other side, you have the institutions and the powers that be, and a particular voice for them in Sam Harris. Um, Sam Harris is notorious in some circles as being one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, uh, famous for his uh, effective advocacy of atheism and uh, critique of religion. <laughs> Up there with Charles Dawkins and uh, Hitchens, you know, he's, he's listed with those, those people. He's a, he's a neuro, what, a neuroscientist? As opposed to like a neurologist. I think that's right, a neuroscientist. Anyway, very intelligent, very persuasive. You watch him in a debate. He's very good, very quick, mm-hmm. and he's very, uh, yeah, just very good. Um, yeah, and and his podcast, the it's making sense with Sam Harris, 
it's known for being a very a very thorough and careful and patient either analysis or discussions whatever whatever it is sam harris is talking about you expect sam harris to be incredibly reasonable to be very well thought out very well articulated with whatever he's talking about you know no one would describe sam harris as being hysterical (laughs) or merely uh uh trusting of of authorities right he's he's a man with Mm -hmm. the intellectual abilities to understand anything he wanted to and you know took the time to and so uh, it's interesting. His, his audience is, is somewhat unique among podcasters. Um, Joe Rogan, I, I, I don't even know what Joe Rogan's audience is. I'm sure it includes just about everything is he covers just about everything. Brett Weinstein, um, you, when you, when you compare Sam Harris to others like Brett Weinstein and their, his audience, there's something more exclusive about it. There, there is, for instance, a paywall. Now, you can bypass the paywall by claiming, you know, you can click a box that says something like, I, I can't afford to pay for this, or I want the free version, or whatever it is. And you can get access to all of his stuff. Now, some of his episodes are also just automatically free because they are, uh, they're public service announcements is how he describes them. Yeah, yeah PSAs. <laughs> um, and, and by adding that barrier, right, as small as it is, even being able to bypass it entirely and, and, do it free. I, I I would say it's not that small. You have to you have to That's email. True. I mean, it's 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 it's, it's not, not nothing. nothing, especially in the world of podcasts yes. where it's all you of, have to do is yeah. is log into Spotify and start listening, or you know Google Podcasts or Apple Play, whatever. Right, it is. right. It, well, while it's relatively easy to to get through it, it is an anomaly. Gen, as you're saying in the in the world of podcasts, it's which makes it a big deal, which makes it like. You don't, most of the time that's enough to turn people away. And he's, he's fine with mm-hmm. that. The, the, this is, uh, in part because his audience, as you hear him talk about it and discuss the demographics of it from time to time, is very, very elite. Um, which again is kind of odd. <laughs> the podcasts have this mm-hmm. kind of reputation for like, uh, people who want to learn to do things themselves, get their life together. Yeah, being yes. the everyman yeah. kind of medium. Yeah, and Sam Harris's audience is not that. Um, he'll often he has some episodes on on learning courage in business, not learning, but but trying to be courageous in business, um, and be principled. And he's he's obviously addressing the very very elite. And does so because he knows they're listening in large part, you know, personally knows several billionaires. And um, anyway, part of a part of a, a very elite circle. Um, and he does podcasting because he wants to be insulated from cancellation, right? like like a lot of them. He wants to be able to. Yeah, he wants, yeah, he wants to be able to say things that people disagree with and do it anyway. Right. And not have someone over his head, mm-hmm. not have some editor, not have some control. Um, so he's not necessarily like uh, inherently against. I, I'd mentioned that he uh, he's on the side of the institutions in this particular debate. He's not always on the side of the institutions, uh, but anyway, what's interesting is how he's decided to handle this. And Brad, you were telling me about a particular line that I sets this up well. Yeah. So th- so this this whole discussion 
the, the reason we're framing it this way is everyone who's familiar with the COVID debate kind of understands how this works, that you have the main narrative in terms of COVID, which is which is a, a large narrative, but but relatively straightforward, which is COVID is dangerous, COVID is bad, you need to get the vaccine, and there aren't really any alternative treatments, except now you've got monoclonal antibodies and remdesivir. But otherwise, if you want to end COVID and you want to stop COVID, and if you care about COVID at all, you have to get the vaccine. And anything that opposes that is not just wrong, but is also endangering humanity, is endangering our way of life. And obviously, I'm speaking hyperbolically here, but just to illustrate this main narrative that you've heard before. And and a key component of, of that narrative is the idea that even, even asking the questions, even having the conversations and questioning things like the vaccine, being vaccine hesitant right now makes you lumped in with anti-vaxxers. You know what I mean? Like, for example, us on our podcast, we've asked a lot of questions and we've, you know, even encouraged people to listen to Dark Horse podcasts. So anyone listening would probably feel comfortable in saying we're anti-vax, even though we've been pretty clear that depending on your risk, getting the vaccine may very well be a great idea. And so calling us anti-vax is is an oversimplification. But anyways, that brings us to Sam Harris. Sam Harris released an episode a while back condemning Brett Weinstein for asking these questions and for basically as Sam Sam Harris put it, you know, destroying people's people's trust in in this main narrative. And Sam Harris's argument is that Brett Weinstein is going to cause people to die because they're not going to get the vaccine. And so so Sam Harris has this episode, Brett Weinstein responds and then after that, Sam Harris, while having an, uh, a question and answer episode, discusses one of the things that his audience members kept asking him to do, which is why doesn't he actually have a discussion with Brett Weinstein and talk about it? So Brett Weinstein and Sam Harris have actually talked before, you know, they've they've had discussions. I think Brett Weinstein mediated for Sam Harris and someone else. Anyways, it doesn't matter. The details don't matter. But so they have this history. They know who each other are. You could consider them, you know, at least acquaintances, if yeah. not friends. He'd probably, they probably would, yeah, have, I would have said friends you know, some time ago. Loose friends beforehand. And, he, and he's asked the question why won't he have this discussion with Brett Weinstein? And he basically says the reason is because even having the discussion, even if I even if I'm able to answer all of his concerns, there are still people who are going to hear that discussion and hear him ask those questions. And just by asking those questions, even if I have answers, are going to be convinced to not get the vaccine, and I'm not willing to do that. And he cites a uh, a concern for public health and basically this crisis that in a time of crisis it's not worth it to risk that which is really interesting which is really an interesting concept that that basically what it comes down to is during this time of crisis we cannot 
I mean, at least in Sam Harris's case, we cannot encourage any kind of dissenting opinion. Just by having a dissenting opinion, you are 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 causing death. I mean, he's he's specifically said that about <laughs> Brett Weinstein. That Brett Weinstein, by voicing these concerns out loud, out loud, is causing people to die, and Brett Weinstein is responsible for that. And you can understand on a pragmatic level why Sam Harris would be arguing that. You know, if the vaccine is effective and everyone should take it, and people who aren't taking it are more likely to die, therefore every you know, I mean, it probably have to be every few hundred people that Brett Weinstein convinces not to get the vaccine is one more death that is directly attributable to Brett Weinstein. And of course, the obvious response that you get from the opposite side is, if we can't have an honest discussion and ask questions during a crisis, then who decides? Who is the one who decides what is worth saying and what isn't allowed to be said? And this, of course, goes back to the the censorship issue that, that's been had before. But it's not really about censorship here because it's it's just about it's just about the search for truth and the search for what's right in a time of crisis, which is obviously a very real issue that we're experiencing today, and it's an even more broad issue because just because it's a crisis now doesn't mean that when it's not a crisis, the answer to these questions won't be important. You know, as long as what we're talking about is important, then having the discussion can theoretically cause people to change their mind and cost lives or cost whatever. Right. How do you have any important conversations if your fear is that just by having the conversation means you'll lose people to the conspiracy nuts like Brett Weinstein? Right. right. It's a, it's, we did an episode uh, shortly after that particular episode of Sam Harris. We we talked at length about this battle, uh, this war mindset, right? Where, um, where there is an occasion, there are times in life where you can't tolerate dissent, and generally that's because what's at stake in the rapidity of the response have to be you know, are both extremely high. You have to respond extremely quickly in a coordinated manner with other people. And you have to, and or else people die, right? You can imagine you're, you're in some kind of a military combat scenario and your commanding officer gives an order while your team's under fire. You know, this isn't like at the planning stage or something. This is in the moment. Um, and he makes a call. To some degree, in situations like that, it, you can often make the argument that following his call, whatever your personal opinion on it is, is probably your best chance of survival. Because of just the, the, the scenario, right? You need, you need to be coordinated. You need to be mm-hmm. doing, working towards the same thing. You don't have time. You have, you know, there, there are occasions where true authoritarian, you know, just obedience is, is, may save your life and you hope at that point that you have you know you have a good commander and you have trust in him and you've built up these things over years whatever that seems to be the kind of thinking that uh that brett wines not brett excuse me sam harris was encouraging in that moment um but what's odd about it is it's not that (laughs) that's not the situation we're in we're in a situation where the search for the truth and the study of the truth 
is precisely what needs to happen. Where mm-hmm. we're, we're at the planning meeting at which all voiced dissent can be useful and integrated. Not at the, not at the stage of execution, right? I'm, COVID is an ongoing search to understand what's effective to address it. And Sam Harris's response to this as a, as an individual, not, not his particular response to that, to Brett Weinstein's conversation, but his choice in how he should engage is really interesting to me because they go ahead. You had a comment on that. And then I was going to go into. No, I, I have so many comments that it's hard for me to organize my thoughts here as we're having this conversation. I just wanted to bring up the fact that Sam Harris has just recently had another mm-hmm. public service episode about COVID that was about three hours long, um, talking to, you know, a, uh, a scientist, uh, what was his name? Uh, Nicholas Christakis, right. is that right. right? Yeah, I wanted to say Christopher Christakis, <laughs> I got him mixed up there, but Nicholas Christakis. Christakis is an awesome last name, I have no idea what its origin yeah. is, but... Strippy. But I like it. But he has this three-hour conversation, and it's interesting hearing this conversation because you can see that 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 Sam Harris is a little bit different than he was mm-hmm. a few months ago. He's realized because in these in these months and years, he's realized more and more again there's a very legitimate reason that people are upset with this main narrative. You know, he acknowledges the fact that that people have been have been lied to have been lied to and now it's been and now it's it's an open lie you know it's it's a known fact that they've been lied to by these institutions who are now the institutions that they have to trust in order to in order to move forward you know into this main in this main narrative on covid and it's really interesting i mean this conversation it's it's a long one but but I'm so glad I listened to it, and I would encourage others, especially those of you who are interested in COVID, who are interested in alternative answers to COVID beyond the main narrative, listen to this three-hour podcast with Sam Harris, because they have really interesting discussions that are the kind of discussions, or at least questions. The discussions are not good, <laughs> but the questions are really good about what you do to get answers in a time like this. You know, Sam Harris basically raises the question, you know, what do you do when you are not able to actually go and do all of the research, but you're not able to trust the institutions? You know, at what point do you turn to someone else? They have a, a discussion about how in in the history of, of scientific discovery, there are often times where the the established theory is incorrect and you have a backyard astronomer or or a backyard you know somebody who is able to discover it on their own that this is the correct answer and the whole scientific community may oppose it at first but then realize yes that is the correct answer and make an adjustment you know and so they they acknowledge that this is this is actually a legitimate and long-standing practice, but then Sam Harris will then go on to talk about how probabilistically, you know, you're most likely to be correct if you believe what everyone else believes. And it's it's this really interesting duality that he's trying to balance as he understands, and you can see how over these past few months, 
his listeners have brought up so many concerns that he's listened to, and he understands these concerns that are being brought up, but it hasn't been enough to change his mind. And you just have to listen to it. It's it's very interesting. It's it just is. interesting to listen to just it for It is that. in part because, as you said, he's he's struggling with the fact that he he made that claim from that we mentioned initially that uh, this kind of wartime mentality thing. And he's addressed COVID several times. And he's concluded each time, mm-hmm. rightfully, that he has not persuaded anyone. Uh, or, you know, so few that it, that it didn't matter. Uh, and he's, talk, he's talked about that yeah, openly. In fact, in this... In fact, in this most recent episode, as you listen to the episode, he acknowledges at different points throughout the episode, you know, he says, you know, for those of you who are still listening, who I'm sure haven't believed a word we've said for the last two (laughs) hours, you know, you know, you know, very kind of sarcastically, but not really that he understands that, that what he's doing is not working. And the reason it's not working is because... Of the fact that from the beginning, he said he's not willing to have an open yes. discussion. And and that and that statement at the beginning has closed so many people off to what Right. I, to yeah. I, that was that was really well said. And I want I, that takes me to uh to where I was going perfectly. Um Sam could have done a variety of things to begin this to begin this COVID-19 and dealing with it as someone with a large audience who people respect and, and, uh, and someone who, you know, is influential and could be influential on this topic. And I think what he did do through what possible influence he could have had away. And now perhaps he has, he has gained some of it back, um, perhaps with this most recent episode. But I think he, I think he managed to completely sideline himself, and I think he did. How he did that is really interesting, because um, obviously that was not his goal. Um, I think part of it is that he didn't appreciate what his audience is expecting of him. Sam Harris could be getting into the studies, educating himself as much as possible, and having a, and coming to these discussions as a participant. He has not. What he does is come to it in the same manner that a journalist does. Here, here are what the authorities say. Here are what the naysayers say. You know, and to try and navigate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as, as as an, an interviewer, of, you know, as a as a mm-hmm. mediator, not as a as someone who knows anything about the issues. Yes, and there's nothing wrong with that. If if he ha- doesn't have the time or the interest or thinks it would be wouldn't be worth it for him to get no, into it. No, I mean it. that's that's what Barry Weiss right. does with with her podcast. You know, her goal is to interview people who have unique perspectives, but she doesn't bring them on and then say, "Well, I completely disagree with that." You know, you know she doesn't she doesn't push back very hard mm-hmm, against mm-hmm. these people because her her purpose is to give them a platform to have that discussion, not. Not to have an argument, you know, uh-huh. not to be a participant. Her job is a <laughs> yeah. reporter. For and the she most does a part. marvelous job but, of telling stories. <laughs> but Sam Harris's job is not as a reporter. Not That's people not for. what his podcast for. His podcast is there to mm-hmm. make sense. You know what I mean? That's his uh-huh. promise is that he's he's going to make sense of what's going on. So then he on. sets himself up as a foil to Brett Weinstein, right? A voice in the podcasting mm-hmm. world refuting the other podcasters who are who are on what he sees as a kind of fringe um, on this issue. 
But having decided not to search this himself, what he's left with is saying, I hear what Brett Weinstein's saying. I hear what these, what the institutions are saying, the CDC and such are saying. And I have to pick which one I trust based on the little I know. And I pick the CDC and the institutions. Yeah. And obviously he doesn't no. word it that way. But, but basically what he comes out and says is, I know Brett Weinstein is wrong because all these institutions explicitly state mm-hmm. that he's wrong. Which is, which is ironic because he can't know the institutions are right because he decided not to dig in and actually engage the studies fully, you know, and try and, and try and be a part of this discussion. So it's, it, which is why I phrased it the way I did. You're right. That's how he says it. But in mm-hmm. essence, what he's saying is I trust them more than I trust Brett Weinstein, mm-hmm. which again mm-hmm. is fine. That's in, to some degree, all of us are in a position where we have to, you know, make choices, make choices like, that. like that, but he wasn't explicit about it. I wish I, w- I think he would have had a very different experience with his audience, if what he had said was, look, I'm not going to dig into this and, and try and sort it out for whatever reason. Maybe, maybe he, is, he thinks that it would not be productive, that he would just be adding noise to the confusion. But then he can't do that. He can't make that choice and also say, you know, and, and, and be the proper foil for people who mm-hmm. have. Because it ends up so many of his episodes end up being like, yeah, they're wrong about everything. Well, they've made a variety of specific claims, right? <laughs> Very specific claims mm-hmm. With, mm-hmm. with studies to back them. Um, and those claims are not addressed. There's just kind of a hand-waving of, no, 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 don't trust them. And, it, and it's funny when he talks about that. He says, well, yes, I'll, I'll debunk the one specific thing, but then they'll bring up something else and something else and something else. And I'll never get to the bottom of it because they're just whack conspiracy yes. theorists. And, and it's, there's some validity to that argument that if someone wants to argue with yes, you, they can they always can pull up argue. What's so interesting here is that he's not talking about someone that he knows is crazy. He's talking about someone that he specifically knows pre-COVID to be a reasonable mm-hmm, voice. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? To to talk, and it's it's so interesting because in this specific instance, which is so unusual, you've got someone who believes, I mean, calling it a conspiracy is a bit much, but who believes alternative theories about the world we live in today. AKA conspiracies. I mean, Brett Weinstein and, and Heather Hying, for the most part, have been pretty careful mm-hmm. about what they've argued. They have they have not claimed this is a yes. big conspiracy. They've just raised a lot mm-hmm. of questions. A lot of people who listen to them have then taken that next step and said, "Yes, this is all just a massive <laughs> conspiracy." But but the point is, is that for the most part, they've just brought up some very serious concerns, and. If Sam Harris had been willing to have that conversation with them, I don't think it would have gone the way that Sam Harris thought it was going to go. I don't know where this fear came from with Sam Harris that that all of a sudden Brett Weinstein was going to turn into, you know, I don't I don't even know what to call it, but but someone who doesn't care about whether or not something mm-hmm. is true. You know what I mean? And it's just it was right. Really I can't help but think that he he over uh, overestimated the threat of COVID significantly. I mean, he would talk. He talked at one point about how he 
how he uh, how he ordered food and went through this lengthy mini step decontamination process to to take the food that had been dropped off on his porch and get it into his body and it involved all kinds of disinfectants and cooking the food again <laughs> but <laughs> but his <laughs> you know you know it's interesting because it's something that i forget about on a regular basis dan as a blue collar worker from basically the beginning of covid they said hey there's this there's this new disease it's very scary you know you need to you need to work from home you need to quarantine and i'm like okay awesome but i have to go to work you know what i mean and i have to be around other human beings on a regular basis and there's no way i can get around that whether or not i pick up my groceries versus going into the store i'm going to mm-hmm. be exposed mm-hmm. to people and and that changed how I saw COVID over the next year and a half. Because as time goes on and people continue to quarantine and it continues to even self-quarantine, not uh-huh. talking about lockdown specifically, how that shapes how they viewed COVID versus me where long before you know the vaccine came out, I was just interacting with people all the time because I had to. And you just you just lived with it. And so it, it it tended to make the whole thing less scary because I had been exposed to it for the past year and a half. But I forget about the fact that for people like Sam Harris, for a lot of white collar workers, and especially for the elite, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? The people the people who like Sam Harris are able to do what they do and isolate while doing it. You know, people who work from home, people who were able to make their jobs work from home, people who are able to leave their jobs and live off of the income, you know, that they already have through investments or whatever, have been able to spend the last year and a half isolating and what that's allowed them to do. And I say allowed them to do, but one of the unfortunate side effects of that is that it means they could have been living in fear for the past two years and with no reason not right. to be afraid. Nothing because that pushes them to confront the world and actually live in it. <laughs> exactly, because because COVID could be as deadly as Ebola and and they wouldn't know because they haven't been out and seen the world around them. Right. You know what I mean? When all you're consuming is, is just fear-mongering about COVID, you know, through all these many channels that, that push that. And then you stay at home. And so you're living that choice. It makes perfect right, sense. Right, right. When you, the polls of, uh, of how people assess the danger of COVID um, are, are jarring and how far they are from uh, reality and how far the people's assumptions about it, particularly people who have done exactly what you've said, been, been quarantined basically the entire time and are not interacting with the world and, and are getting their news from particular sources. Their assessment of how dangerous COVID is is way off. Um, anyway, it, it's interesting. Whatever Sam's, whatever Sam's personal uh, psychology regarding COVID is, and why it is that he he deals with it in this manner, I think at this point you can objectively say what his attempts, as he has assessed them, have failed. And part of this is because I think there's a changing landscape of information. We do not live in the world where all information is filtered prior to us receiving mm-hmm. it. Or at least not, not filtered, filtered by, by the, the same, same sources. sources. Yes, thank you. That's, that's better. 
It's almost yes. always filtered by yes. by someone. And even then, the selection for it to be somewhere is a filtering process. You're right. Mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. that's that's more precise. Yeah, exactly. Um, which means uh, it used to be that people outside of the normal narrative really were isolated and fringe and and more frequently uh i think eccentric and crazy this would be an interesting thing to look into and study because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where they're getting their details from matters and and they just don't have access to that much information that other people don't also know right? they're they're drawing from the same articles and newspapers and the same shows and the same you know you go to the library and you find an obscure book and and then they read it and they get these conspiracy theories and you show that book to someone who's mm-hmm. who's well educated and informed and they look at it and then within 2 seconds you know they can take it apart because it's actually nonsense this book should, <laughs> this book is mm-hmm. clearly poorly written and all these other problems with it right that is mm-hmm. not the mm-hmm. case anymore the people on the fringe of the people outside of the the mainstream narrative of covid-19 are not crazy they are the and, and they're, they're not, not fringe, fringe either that's, they're a large right. percentage of the u.s that's population right. that's a really important qualifier they're not fringe and they're they are not uh not few in number um and they what's what's interesting is if you want to hear people discuss covid19 data you go to those people because they're the ones discussing Mm-hmm. We've dug around the CDC's numbers for probably like a year now. <laughs> Not every day, right? But off and on for a long period of time. And I feel like today I finally located the place in which they make most of their significant uh, arguments and they have their references to studies, right? This is, in some ways, this is the most useful place to be looking at their information. And it's, it's buried in there. I had to, I had to <laughs> we finally found the actual doctor guidelines, right? <laughs> Where they're making the case to doctors. But even that isn't as explicit as I would like. I would like to know why they included, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll talk about a specific drug and they'll list studies related to it and they'll state their conclusions and things. And I would like to know why they picked those studies and not others, right? Why they did, why, uh, why they are overlooking the errors often acknowledged in these studies, but not overlooking the errors in other studies, right? How do you, how do you get to this? This is the discussion I want to hear. This is the discussion, mm-hmm. discussion that has to happen at some level to navigate the studies to determine what's relevant and what is, what is picking up something else. And if you think the studies speak for themselves, they don't. They, they usually don't, especially in medical treatment. Mm-hmm. There are so many variables. Even if you're beyond the, <laughs> one of the things we've learned from this is it's just so hard to get a good study. Not just, it, not like mm-hmm. a good study mm-hmm. in the sense that it's double blind and all the things that make it kind of the gold standard for evidence. But just a study that is done well, <laughs> that isn't clearly biased in some sense, isn't clearly trending in a particular direction. Um, it's, uh, it's surprisingly difficult. And I think we underestimate how easy it is for uh, science does not speak for itself, uh, despite Fauci's proclamations. 
But beyond that, <laughs> beyond that, when you're looking at the effect of drugs, some drugs are only effective in combination with others. Some drugs are effective early, not so effective later, and ineffective in the late stages. Some drugs are only effective above certain dosages. Mm -hmm. It's not a black and white equation of does ivermectin work mm -hmm. or does hydroxychloroquine work? It's does it work at this dose and or with this combination right. of other drugs? So a single study, even perfectly done, will not rule out a drug. Unless, you know, I, I guess it could if it were like, you know, everyone who takes this dies. <laughs> Fair enough. But most cases, right, it's, it's, it's a single study at a, because they're going to study at a single dosage at a single time so that it's consistent, right? They've got their, you limit the variables. But by changing those variables, you often change the effectiveness of the medical treatment. So it's interesting. People will do things like they will cite a study and they will say, this study shows that uh, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, uh, what else is the, the controversial? Those are the two controversial ones I hear a lot. Yeah. The most controversial um, and ones. And they yeah. will, they will say this, this shows what we need to know. And it, and it can't. <laughs> it really doesn't in most cases. And where these are so harmless, at least, you know, where they're so, uh, mm -hmm. taking them has so little impact on the health of the person. Yeah, especially especially ivermectin. I know hydroxychloroquine does have a little bit more risk, and I haven't looked into that one fully. But ivermectin, ivermectin at least, like even looking at the uh, the NIH's treatment guidelines, they're very clear about the fact that it has very mm -hmm. low risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's one of the least I've, I've heard, and it seems from what we've found this accurate that it is one of the least harmful drugs in terms of side effects. It just, it seems to have virtually none mm -hmm. for almost everybody. Um, unlike the ones you hear advertised on TV all the time that may kill you or cause you to kill someone else. Or, <laughs> I don't know. What, are, what are the most ridiculous side effects? <laughs> Grow wings, something. Yeah. But the thing is, is these, these drugs and how they're used is complicated. I mean, a great example of this is now, even with the vaccines, we've realized that it's not black and white either, that the data is much more complicated than we were initially told. It's not, oh, these vaccines are 95% effective at stopping you from getting COVID. No, these vaccines are actually 95% effective at stopping you from getting hospitalized and dying with COVID. And actually, those numbers change with Delta, and those numbers change mm -hmm. with Omicron, and those numbers change based off of when you received your last dose. And it changes based off of whether you got Pfizer, Moderna, or J and J. And and it changes if you get a booster. You know, and all of these all of these factors make it so that the vaccines are a lot like these other drugs in that it's complicated. I mean it's not super complicated, but there is varying degrees of effectiveness based off of how you're using it. And these drugs are like that, but in an even more complicated way, that how much the dose is, how much you administer it, when you administer it, how early on in the process has an effect. I mean, monoclonal antibodies, which are now approved for use, do work that way. You know, the, the, the official guideline is you test positive and you're in a high risk group, depending on where you live, you should get monoclonal antibodies right away and they'll help you. And if you get 
don't get monoclonal antibodies and you get more sick after getting testing positive for COVID and we want to admit you to the hospital, at that point, we will no longer give you monoclonal antibodies because they're reduced effectiveness, even though they still have some effectiveness and it's unclear how much they do, they just stop giving it because that's the official treatment guideline and there's no flexibility in it. What's really interesting, Dan, with this world that we live in now is that the real world in terms of COVID is very muddy mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and very complicated and not straightforward. Um, even talking about it like we are now is simplifying it just to talk about it because it's the real world. We're talking about billions and right. billions of people. We're talking about very different strains of the virus. You know, we label them Omicron, Delta, and, and the mainstream, but it's even more nuanced than that. You know, even the viral, you know, the amount of the virus you get infected with varies person to person and how your body handles is it is a unique experience. And all mm -hmm. of these things have really significant impacts on how we should be looking at this virus. And we can't do all of that as we're talking about it. You can't even do all that as you're trying to diagnose the problem and then find ways to treat it. But we can try and we can, and, and the best way that we believe to do that is to have the most open conversation possible about what's going on so that we can be open to these ideas. We can be open to having different ideas. and um, But that's not what's being done. What's being done is you have a main narrative that is very black and white and very straightforward. You know what I mean? The vaccine works, <laughs> period. No question mark, no caveats. You know what I mean? And the vaccine, vaccine is safe. No questions, no, no caveats. These alternative treatments like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and fluvoxamine don't work and are yes. not safe. Hydroxychloroquine is, no uh, has been marks. forbidden by the by the guide the official guidelines, and there are people that have been mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. fired for using it. Mm -hmm. For using it, even though it's much <laughs> muddier than that, to the point that. If you look at the NIH guidelines for COVID-19, they actually acknowledge that ivermectin does not have enough evidence to be either promoted or banned. Here's, here's, the, here's the recommendation, the official recommendation from the NIH. There is insufficient evidence for the COVID-19 treatment guidelines panel, aka the panel, who wrote this, to recommend either for or against the use of ivermectin for the treatment of COVID-19. Results from adequately powered, well-designed, and well-conducted clinical trials are needed to provide more specific evidence-based guidance on the role of ivermectin in the treatment of COVID-19. If you said that on a podcast, without quoting it, if you just said that as your own idea, you would you would most likely be labeled anti-vax or <laughs> fringe but that's what the nih says the nih says that we're we don't think you should recommend against using ivermectin aka if a doctor wants to use ivermectin there's no reason we can mm -hmm. think of we to lack tell them the evidence to, to say or don't to use, use it. it yeah that we 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 have nothing to say to them that they that right. we think there should be more studies done and until then you know it's up to it's up yeah to you. Well, it's interesting i this is a but the point is and and how that's been used by 
the main narrative is nothing no. like that. It's do not use yes. ivermectin. Uh-huh. Don't do it. It's interesting because the we we <laughs> there is a serious discussion to be had about uh, drug evidence. When you get to uh, when you try to approve a new drug, it's tested thoroughly. You get the FDA it goes through this extensive mm-hmm. process that may or may not be ridiculous and to a degree corrupt. But we can all agree <laughs> that there should be as extensive testing so we can learn as precisely as possible the benefits that as we can. Right? If if I'm going to put something in my body that may give me anything from headaches to heart failure, as is often the mm-hmm. case when you're putting drugs in your body, uh, is you, you look at it, you know, varies a lot. Um, yeah. You want to know exact, exactly what are the odds that I die for taking this? Because it's entirely possible that that's not worth what it's going to do for me. You know, assuming it works mm-hmm. for me, mm-hmm. which it may not, because everybody's different and they're in there, and it's not always 100% consistent, even in its efficacy. Um, and so if you're going to make this kind of decision, you're weighing potential benefit against potential risk, right? And to discover precisely what those values are, you need the most effective studies, and many of them, so that you can show that it's replicable, so that you can show that it that it's consistent as you vary dosage and the other variables we talked about. Right? So you can see you can see all of the uh, complexity and and all of the variables and put them in their proper place and say, for this group of people with these conditions, this may increase their quality of life. Right? Mm-hmm. That takes years and years and a fortune in money to do. We still have not had enough time to do that with COVID. And with the variants, we don't have a prayer of doing that. If we wait Mm -hmm. for that level of evidence, that level, not that level of evidence, that level of precision, we will never Mm -hmm. get it. Which brings us to a serious problem. Yeah, which. And then if you, you, you add this fact that if you could go for a lesser bar of evidence, right? You could say, well, what signals that it's good against COVID and weigh that against the known risks, right? We're looking at drugs that we're familiar mm-hmm. with, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, others that we already have. A new drug obviously needs to go through some kind of other process. And we say, what are the risks? What are the potential benefits? Ivermectin signals well that there's a significant benefit, right? Maybe even a, maybe in some cases a huge benefit, depending on how it's administered and things. What are the risks? Mm-hmm. Negligible. Least risky, <laughs> least risky drugs we've ever seen. Why is that not enough? Now, I get why it's not enough in other circumstances. I get why that's not enough when a new drug is coming out. And I get why it's not enough when the yeah, risks when are high. Well, and, and I think we should clarify at this point what we're talking about. Because what we're talking about is not a new drug coming into existence that we're Mm -hmm. going to use to combat COVID that has a strong signal. What we're talking about is doctors using a drug off-label. And that is actually a standard practice in medicine where you have something new that you don't know what to do with 
And so you start experimenting. And one of the easiest ways to experiment is with drugs that already are approved mm -hmm. for other uses that have an established safety track record. And that's what ivermectin is. That's why people used ivermectin back in early 2020 when there was barely even a signal, when there were some early, yeah. early lab work that showed something that had an interesting reaction. And doctors said, okay, well, we have people dying of COVID right now. We know ivermectin. It's got a 40-year yeah. track record. So we'll start using it because worst case it scenario, mm -hmm. it does nothing. And that costs right. us nothing. The, the, no, um, and that's why we have a stronger signal now is because those early doctors used it and were like, wow, I've seen some interesting results where it does seem to be helping my patients. Let's do some more studies. And studies were done and said, okay, there is yes. something here. And then other studies were done that said, oh, I'm not seeing something. And now you have this big question mark about how effective it really is, but no question mark about how dangerous yes, it yes. is. The, the potential risk is almost, you know, it's virtually zero. Uh, for anything serious, it's zero. Um, it's interesting. They, they, some of you may have heard about the, the articles about people overdosing on ivermectin and being in the hospital and blocking gunshot mm, wounds. Yeah, the horse paste. That was, that was yeah. entirely BS. It was entirely BS. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, <laughs> I heard someone who's very familiar with numbers say that they had never heard of anyone ever being hospitalized for ivermectin. You could actually take a ridiculous amount and be fine. Um, the, uh, it's interesting. We, we have a weird, again, I, I, I think this is probably due to inflexibility because it's a political system. A political system cannot adapt. It has one method for approving drugs. We then got emergency authorization for the vaccines. Um, and, uh, and I assume that that applies somewhat to the drugs, but again, it creates a certain system. Well, and that, and that was one of the problems, Dan, is that we actually got EUAs for the drugs because so, so you have 2019, right? right? right. It's 2019 and any doctor can use ivermectin to treat anything if they think it might work. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? That they're like, Hey, I have this new disease. I don't even know what it is. They're like, well, we'll throw yeah, ivermectin at a... it. Hmm. No one's going to. No one's going to fire that doctor, right? Then you cut to 2020 and they're like, hey, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine are showing some interesting results. And I can't remember which one got an EUA or if it was both of them, but at least one of them got an EUA temporarily. The federal government said, use this. And then they said, don't use this. And all of a sudden it went from neutral to yes to no instead of remaining neutral the whole time, which is something that I would have preferred. And this is where I want to take a, a brief moment to pause here and say, as we're talking about this, you're obviously thinking, okay, well, what they think is we should replace the vaccine with ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, to which your response is, well, the vaccine also has a near zero death rate. So why wouldn't we just get the vaccine? if it's already proven to be more effective than ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. And I would respond with, well, that is an excellent point, which is why we are not anti-vax, <laughs> which is why we stated quite recently, hey, look at, your, look at your risk stratification, look at your comorbidities as well as your age, and you make a determination for you. That is what we recommend. Yes. You know what I mean? Um, and, and the other thing you want to, the third factor I forgot to mention is whether or not you've already had COVID because the data 
for naturally induced or infection-induced immunity is very strong. And it's not because one additional thought on that. There are categories of people for whom the vaccine may be more dangerous than COVID-19. And it's not because the vaccines are super dangerous, right? It's because COVID COVID for for a large group of people is is so such a negligible threat that there's no reason to even uh, for them to even contemplate it, other than if they interact regularly with someone who is elderly and, and mm-hmm. to protect others. Yeah, and there's no reason for for young people. You know, it's no. There's no reason for kids to be given ivermectin for the same reason. There's no reason I mean, for them to get right. the vaccine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because even with ivermectin's mild symptoms, it doesn't make sense. Um, and then, so, so that's the first part is that not anti-vaccine. The second part is we're not saying replace the vaccine You're with right. these drugs. We're saying we want the same – we want these drugs to be available for doctors to use where they see fit. And there's been a very strong push over the last year and a half to make that very, very difficult for right. doctors to do. I mean, I've I've heard of 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 there's lots of anecdotal evidence for how much doctors have struggled. There's news articles about it, about hospitals blocking it, pharmacies making it very difficult for them to prescribe drugs that they see as helpful for their patients without any safety yeah. risks and or at least negligible ones. And that's what we're we're looking for. We're not looking for the government to mandate that everyone gets ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine or even that they encourage it. Just <laughs> allow it. And we're not asking that the, the vaccines be taken off the shelves. Not at all. Keep mm. the vaccines. The vaccines serve a very real purpose. Right. They just don't mandate them. <laughs> right. They may be they if if you want to know that what our what our overall opinion is on all of this, it would be that. <laughs> it would you know? be. I, I'm glad you mentioned that in case uh, in case you haven't been closely following and tracking our opinions over the course of these COVID episodes. Yeah, if you're just listening to this episode, <laughs> this is where we're at. It hasn't, it hasn't changed. changed. Um, in part because, in, and I think that that neutrality, that lack of a mandate for or against things, is necessary because of the variations in risk depending on your circumstances. That there. That you are injuring somebody by mandating one of these or forbidding one of these. Um, mm-hmm. It's interesting. We, we use the word signal because that's what I've heard other people use when they talk about. Um, it makes us sound smart. <laughs> it does. And then I was just thinking about how, it's, uh, how it really obscures the point to some degree. We people looked at you mentioned ivermectin as people people throwing ivermectin at things because it's so harmless that there's there's almost no reason not to because it may help especially if it's related to some of the things we know about ivermectin. Yeah. But uh, then there's the places that were taking ivermectin for other reasons that then didn't get significant COVID waves, and so people were looking at that as another signal. What do we mean by signal? We mean evidence. <laughs> this is mm-hmm. it's it's strange that there there has been such a uh, such a praise and focus on perfect evidence, conclusive, mm-hmm. uh, complete, mm-hmm. precise. That to some degree, the scientific community seems alarmingly blind to other evidence. If you look at a place mm-hmm. that takes ivermectin prophylactically 
and you combine that with a signal like, oh, these doctors are messing with it here. They're trying it. Seems to be working. Oh, places that take ivermectin all the time for the, for the deworming effect, um, to avoid certain things in their area and their native areas. And it's, it's very cheap. So you can give it to them instead of other things anyway. Mm -hmm. And they're not having it. These two things combined together give you a correlation that is evidence. Is it proof? Does it give you the specific degree to which ivermectin is effective? No. Is, it, is this all you need? No. Is it, is it so little that you shouldn't consider it? No. It's, you know, right? This is, there's degrees of evidence that we seem unable to even identify. No, and, and, and when they talk about signals, typically what we're talking about when we say signals is you have a doctor who's got his several hundred uh, individual yes. patients, and he starts using ivermectin and notice the positive results in a few patients. That's a signal because it's evidence, but it's a very right, small right. amount of evidence. Or as you said, you know, hey, we notice yeah. this group of people who are doing better better who also have ivermectin, but we haven't – we haven't controlled for all the other yeah. variables, which is why it's still a signal. But as soon as you start getting into the realm of, well, we have studies that show a positive result for mm -hmm. ivermectin, that's not really a signal anymore. It's, it, if, you, if you have one study, just one study that's well-conducted, that has evidence that ivermectin is effective, that's not just a signal anymore. That's strong evidence. That yes, yes, there. We, you're right. Signals useful to distinguish between that which says "look closer" and that which says "there's something yeah. interesting here." Versus saying, there "Yeah," because the, the doctor here. who uses ivermectin, even if he has thousands of patients and seems to see improvement, we don't know enough. I mean, for, <laughs> I don't want to get into all the nuances of why studies are better than other evidence, but but we honestly that may mean nothing, right? It may be sheer coincidence. You, there's no way to to tell based on that alone. Hence the need for studies, why they're so important. Um, they, they carefully try to control for variables so that you can isolate the thing that makes the difference. Um, uh, and they do that through a variety of means if they're done well. Um, that's awesome and extremely useful. Like you said, that's, that at that point constitutes a kind of proof um, that is, that, that it, but all of it can be thought of as kinds of evidence right? You can have evidence of something that didn't happen or that isn't true. Um, but what we want is we want doctors acting on the available evidence. And we're not allowing them to do that. We're allowing them to act only when we've achieved a kind of perfect evidence, right? the conclusive proof. This is not how you should act in a crisis where you may not ever get to that perfect level of proof before things change or before, you know, people will be dead at that point. Mm -hmm. And so you have to weigh the level of evidence that the potential benefit with the potential risk, you have to go by a different standard that is to a large degree forbidden because of the top down approach of dealing with COVID-19. And it's unique to COVID-19. We didn't do this. We don't do this with other, other major issues and with other illnesses and with other things. There's a, there, it's, it's a mistake. Um, and if you want to know why we might be doing it here, this is from one of the studies we were looking at. We were looking at, uh, the hydroxychloroquine is an interesting one. The more I looked at it, the less sure I became of anything I had thought about it. 
<laughs> I found a I found a systematic study that showed you know forty two different studies on on hydroxychloroquine. They're they have different points, you know, at which they're administering it, different amounts, and so on, and what they're administering it with, and things. Uh, of the eleven that took place before hospitalization, in outpatient studies. Uh, this is treatment of people who generally have less serious uh, cases. All 11 of them showed significant positive results. Right? But then I look at other studies and I find, I find varying things. They, they account for, uh, they account for the only three of them showed negative effects that it was actually harmful, right? Not, and, uh, anyway, I'm not going to get into, uh, the details of that. I think it's, I think it's probably a mistake to have categorically said don't give people uh, hydroxychloroquine because there are so many studies that signal it does some good, but there are also studies that signal it's, it, that it is actually neutral. Um, that aside, this is back in May 2020. We didn't have a lot of the information that we had. We didn't have as many of the studies. We didn't have as much. Um, this is a quote. Although preclinical results are promising, to date, there is a dearth of evidence to support the efficacy of chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine in preventing COVID-19. Here's the key line. Considering potential safety issues and the likelihood of imparting a false sense of security, prophylaxis with, with chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine against COVID-19 needs to be thoroughly evaluated in observational studies or highly high-quality randomized controlled studies. Again, the signal is good. Things look promising. We need better studies. I think we can all agree that that's mm -hmm. what we should. We, we all want that. Question is, what do we do with the evidence in the meantime? With the with the good evidence mm -hmm. that it worked. Um, that is, I think, more in debate now. Well, if you're worried about imparting a false sense of security, are you making the best medical decision for the cases in front of you? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that line really encaps encapsulates what Sam Harris is talking about and what isn't being talked about, but is understood by so many who insist that there cannot be a discussion. And it's that right now, fear of COVID is what drives people to get right. vaccinated, right? And well, I mean, I guess not as much now. I mean, you've got the, the OSHA mandates <laughs> back on. So now we might have a fear of, fear of losing our jobs. But up and up until now, we've <laughs> been using fear of COVID as our main instrument for getting people protected against COVID. And if people aren't afraid of COVID because they believe there are other treatments that don't actually work less people are going to get the vaccine. And that's true. You know what I mean? That makes sense. I see why Sam Harris believes that because that's that's very logical. But it's such a disturbing line of reasoning where you argue that you have to ban these drugs and you have to ban dissent both literally and in, you know, I mean, both, both technically where you have groups like YouTube and other things banning these discussions and also in a more vague sense where people who want to have these discussions can't find a platform willing to host them, where there's enormous social pressure 
which is not the same as a, as a federal mandate, but social pressure is a very real and powerful mm. tool that I think has been has been very effective at neutralizing this debate. And the reason is because we have to keep that fear alive and well. And and that's kind of disturbing when you think about it. When when your main instrument of choice is fear, we have this this study at least admitting that one of the things that they're that is deterring them from recommending the use of hydroxychloroquine. Or not even recommending, <laughs> but giving a positive review, <laughs> despite the results being promising. You know, despite. The, the first line, although preclinical results are promising, to date there is a dearth of evidence. Mm-hmm. Right? The evidence that we have, there are things we don't know, but what we, what we have and what we're looking at now looks good. We don't want you to interpret it that way. We want you instead to avoid that. <laughs> you know, we want you instead to conclude something different than what the information suggests. Why? Because we think that will influence your decision so that you make the best decision in the long run which is what, in this case, probably to support the vaccine or to, or to look for something else, right? Mm-hmm. No, and, and, that's, and that's the whole point. I mean, you read the CDC guidelines and their instructions, and sometimes when I'm reading them, I feel like I feel like I'm reading something written for a child. You know, if you go and you read the myths and facts about COVID-19 vaccines, specifically for children, because this is one where the nuance is super important. This is not black and white. Arguing that it's black and white is, is. so misleading. And and they go and they have these these, you know, myths and these facts and they're just they're they're so simple. And there's there's very li- little easily accessible information behind them. You know, reading this NIH document that's 200 pages long has been so nice for me because in this 200-page NIH document, they actually have <laughs> the studies right below each of their conclusions. You know, when they say something about hydroxychloroquine, they say, this is why we believe that. And I look at it and I read it. And as Dan said, I'm like, okay, there are some convincing arguments being made here. These studies about hydroxychloroquine seem well done and they seem to have some some evidence that points to the fact that at least how hydroxychloroquine was used in these studies was not effective. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's possible that that mixed with other drugs or maybe administered in a different way, you could have different results, but this at least is raising a real question for me about whether or not simply giving people hydroxychloroquine is even right. is even a good idea. Right. Right? And I was able to come to that because they had some some reasonably laid out data that I could look at. But this document is not easily available. It's not easily found. It's not meant for any normal person to read. What normal people are supposed to read is these cute little bullet points from the CDC that say, do what you're told. And, or listen to the Sam Harris podcast that's designed for intellectuals and for people who know how to think and how to reason. And even that three-hour episode is not that different from the CDC. And what's crazy about this is that, as Sam Harris has acknowledged, is it's actually having the opposite effect that people expected it to have. I think there are a lot of people who are anti-vaccine right now who, if exposed to the evidence that I've looked at, 
would get the vaccine. I firmly believe that. If they had been exposed to it, instead of being told and being cajoled and being forced, if they had just had that open discussion on public display that people could listen to, I think a lot of these people would be like, yeah, that actually makes sense for me to get the vaccine. A lot of my concerns have been addressed. But because of the way that they've been treated and the way they've been told, the way legitimate concerns have been dismissed and the way open discussions have been banned have created a situation where it is very, very difficult to be in the middle. There is no room for the middle. There is no room for having a couple of concerns. There is no room. I mean, Joe Rogan is a great example of this. Joe Rogan was not like Brett Weinstein, who was digging through the evidence and said, here are some real concerns. He's just a guy who has a <laughs> podcast who brought people on, asked them some questions. They told him interesting things. And he's like, that's very interesting. If that's true, that could change my mind. Oh, I look into it. That does seem to be true. You are changing my mind. And next thing you know, he's this anti-vax symbol, <laughs> which he really isn't. <laughs> no, he's surprisingly reasonable human being. It's it's interesting. The there used to be a, a a much clearer information hierarchy, and that hierarchy could decide. The people at the top could decide. We can give them the information that we know is accurate, and try and make the case, and hope that they react like reasonable human beings, and <laughs> and in general that this has a good outcome, or. We could control the, the narrative and we could tell them the things that we think will get them to act in the way we are. Now, I think that, I think that people believe we're still in the world where that's possible. And I don't think we're in a world where that's possible anymore. Where what's think, possible? You want to phrase yeah, it a different so way. So I think, I think there, there used to be those two options because you were the only one seeing the initial information. You were the only one. Mm -hmm. Um, there was such a barrier between. Uh, I mean, I mean, even to this day. Gotcha. That that as the as the authority, the authority, the expert, you could get the raw information, decide what's right for the people, tell them, and they'll believe you. But now right. they have access to that raw data too, and so you yes. can't make yes, that precisely, for precisely. Them. That's what you're saying. Access to the information has changed in so many ways. There's so much at our fingertips that uh, that the that you can no longer, that that's no longer a wise solution, at least in a place like the United States where, where Google is, I was going to say, <laughs> you know, fairly open. It is relatively open, right? We're not China where, where various kinds of information are censored. Like you can't find it, right? You can't get to mm -hmm. so much yeah, information. Period. Brad and I can go and we can look at these studies. We can say, you, you think that this, because of this study, you think this, okay, well, let's take a look at that study and let's take a look at similar studies, right? We can, we can do that from our couch with a few clicks, right? That's, that's extraordinary. We don't have to go to a uh, big university library and check out obscure medical journals to see the data. That changes everything. It really does. If you think that you can, <laughs> that you can, uh, there's so many news organizations that still think the best, the current best plan is for them to tell people the things they, they, that will get them to do the right thing rather than tell them the truth. I think it's a, 
Right. I think it's a horrible mistake and those institutions are becoming less and less trusted. And uh, with good reason. reason. With good reason. People will no longer tolerate that kind of... uh, Very few of them, very few people have that kind of faith in institutions at this point. Too much has become political. Too much is obviously driven by other things, right? There's so many... So many things have become atomized in our society. And maybe for be- it's for better as long as the institutions are corrupt. <laughs> maybe if they were maybe if they were better, then you could make a case that people shouldn't be listening to fringe sources. <laughs> if you've already got the truth, then I don't know. But anyway, it's an interesting question. The, de- the debate needs to be had. I think you're, what you said was absolutely right. I know a lot of people who are are against getting vaccinated, who I think would get the vaccination if they had the facts in front of them. They do not have the facts in front of them because the people arguing on behalf of the vaccination will not give them to them because they think it yeah, they because don't use they the think facts. it will undermine them. They think they think being like, you know what? The vaccines have not been nearly as effective as we had hoped. They're barely doing anything to start to stop the spread of to slow the spread of Delta. It's an, it's a negligible difference in, in how they're spreading. They may do nothing with Omicron, right? <laughs> but you should still well, take it because it was... of this. This has proved to be effective, mm-hmm. even though these other things, right? That kind of case is not being positively made. Well, and and part of it is the way that they're portraying the information. A great example of this is is so many media agencies, when the vaccine first came out, reported on the vaccine as if it was a sterilizing vaccine, as if getting the vaccine meant you would not get COVID. That is how they reported on it. And then at some point in the past year, they made a switch saying, obviously, COVID doesn't do that, but here's what it does do. And there was no, hey, we we made an error in the past. They talk as if that's how they've always discussed it, which is very disingenuous and makes you not want to trust what they have to say about it. That's just one example of the way that not being upfront and clear with the facts and the evidence puts you in a bad position because they were afraid early on to say, hey – you know, this is what's effective and this is what we know. And every time they do that, they push people further away. And what's interesting about that is you can't push people into the middle. You tend to push them to the opposite side. You know, a great example of that, like is Peter McCullough, who I enjoyed listening to his three hour episode with Joe Rogan. It was very helpful. It was a great episode, but it doesn't mean that I believe everything Peter Mm -hmm. McCullough says. You know what I mean? It doesn't mean that he's right about everything. There are lots of things that he's wrong about. There are lots of things that he doesn't get right or things that yes, I'm not sure. But at the about. very least, you're going to remain skeptical of until you've looked into. And the problem is, is that it's so difficult for me to maintain any kind of, I don't even like the term moderate, but trying to maintain my own independent opinion that's not the cdc's and not peter mccullough's is very difficult and so what most people do is they just pick one and leave it at that and and the problem is is that reality is always much more complicated than that and the environment we've created is such a one that there is no room for a thousand different opinions that are all a little bit different there's only room for 
the one correct opinion and the one wrong. Looming in the back of your opinions of COVID is what you think of Donald Trump, clearly. So, oh, so if that's (laughs) that's how people talk about it, right? As if as if that Mm -hmm. were a key factor in what you should think about it. It's a yeah. We we need more. I would love for people from the CDC to get together with Brett Weinstein or, you know, something like what's weird is we found good conversations at this point. We do not find good conversations between people on opposing sides. Yeah. People who disagree. And that's why we started with mm-hmm. Sam Harris, because Sam Harris was the one person we hoped who's, Hey, he's got the, 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 the main narrative beliefs, but he has the wisdom and intelligence to realize that what you need here is that yes. kind of discussion. And he didn't. And that was super rough for me personally. <laughs> this was your introduction to and, him in some ways. <laughs> no, because I, I, yeah, you had shown me him before. I listened to a few episodes of his that I really enjoyed. But <laughs> but for, for me, it was so demoralizing when he wasn't willing to go there. Because I'm like, if he's not willing to have this kind of discussion with someone he already knows and respects, then who's going to have this discussion? Who's going to have this open forum and a place where you can actually talk about these things. And I, I just don't see it happening. I don't right, think it right. will. Uh, having found, as we mentioned this, uh, that the actual guidelines from the CDC where they were there for intended for medical uh, experts and things where they actually list the studies and the arguments. What, what would be awesome would be for somebody to take some of the most controversial things, ivermectin, uh, hydroxychloroquine and others, from this – explore the case that is made and have a back and forth, right? People who agree and people who disagree mm-hmm, and say, mm-hmm. here's why having looked at this, I think that the CDC is wrong here, right? The, 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 their conclusion is false. Here's why. Here's my counter evidence, right? Wouldn't that be like, this used to be what happened. <laughs> like this is, this mm-hmm. is how medical research is done. You get competing groups who've come to their own conclusions, who then get together and talk about it. And it's, uh, yeah, it's odd. It, it's, it's sad that that hasn't happened with COVID-19. What, the best we can get is we look at what other governments do, right? We, we do a kind of international search because the, in some ways the, the United States has become so, uh, monolithic and it's, uh, yeah, it's single approach to each, each aspect of the of the approach yes. is singular. You know, whether it's ivermectin or the vaccines, it's the same for everyone across yes. the entire country. Yes, and there hasn't yes, for the it, most it's part. become standardized and in, in, in how treatment happens and things. No, and, and and that's one of the reasons we have so many studies and, and so much data about these alternative treatments is only yes. because of other yes. countries who have yes. looked into them. If it was just the United States, it'd be a very different story. I mean, so much of the data that we have on vaccine efficacy comes from Israel <laughs> yeah. because Israel is the one collecting data, not right. the United the, States. Yeah, it's not, yeah, it's not a, it can't be a lack of interest. It's just that we're not tracking it. And, and yeah, I mean, it was so long ago when the CDC said we have no interest in in breakthrough cases unless they're hospitalized. So we're not going to keep track of how many people get COVID who are vaccinated. Yeah. Well, uh, and it was like, wait, what? Like, why it's not? An extremely useful number for a variety of reasons. Like that's that is what it is. 
it is what so it is. So weird. But that's I said, but that's but I I, I it's uh, I'm <laughs> shaking my hands over here. Um I let's let's live in the nuance. Let's let's acknowledge the fact that people are going to think for themselves whether or not you want them to. And that unless you control all aspects of their life, which you don't at this point, no one does, they're going to have the opportunity to continue to think for themselves. And so if you want to convince them, the best way is going to be through persuasion, and that is going to be through giving them the opportunity to see the facts for themselves. And and that is the best way to convince people of anything and especially in this case, which means that the only way to help people come to your side is to allow dissent yes. instead of shutting it down. And that's what we'd like it's to the see. The fear has not worked. It's, it may have worked up to mm -hmm. a point. It may have worked for a part of the population. It will not work for the remaining part. Yeah, and, and with the remaining part, as we've already seen, the more yes. pushing you, you do – in many ways, you get more. Yeah, the more back. you rely on that fear and on that uh, on on mm -hmm. lack of tolerating dissent, the more persuaded they become that you are the bad actor mm -hmm. here, and that your theory, your mm -hmm. your ideas are the problem. Because if you and the reasoning isn't isn't crazy, if someone has the information to make a persuasive argument, and instead they put a gun to my head. What am I supposed to conclude, right? What a <laughs> that the that the that the persuasive argument wasn't really that wasn't persuasive, that persuasive, right? or they yeah, would have used I, that's it. That's not that unreasonable. No, exactly. When you refuse to show me the data, my logical assumption is that the data doesn't yeah. support. Yeah, what I know. You're I know that's been one of the complaints of. Uh, there have been some studies that, by all metrics, seem to have been very well conducted, but do not release the raw data. Which is suspicious. There's no reason not to. Right? That's that's how. That's it's interesting. It's interesting, and I don't know how many of the ones that the CDC uses are like that, right? But it, but that's a red flag, and it's a there's there's mm -hmm. uh, being uh, transparent is being transparent, being honest, being making the best case you can. That's the way forward. That is the way forward for both parties, for both all political offices, for all, for and certainly the best path forward for science, which requires the pushback, the back and forth, the mm -hmm. the feedback, mm -hmm. the discussion, the discussion between opposing views, not just people who already agree. With that, thank you for listening. This has been an episode of Rethinking Politics. You can find us on all of the major podcasting apps or on YouTube. You can reach out to us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com or you can visit our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com where you can support us via Patreon. Thanks. Have a wonderful day.